0: It's Wednesday, April 12th, 2023, the 812th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and of course Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com/slash I'm your moderator. So if you listened to the podcast yesterday, You will know that I discussed the recent news of Emmanuel Macron's trip to China, where he met with President Xi. And upon his return, he did interviews and talked about his trip, talked about the future of Europe. He talked about how France would not be getting involved in the China Taiwan situation, and that he was focused on the sovereignty of European nations and the EU in particular, thinking that perhaps. The EU would form its own block of power. They did not want to be followers of the United States. And when he was asked about U.S. security guarantees for Europe, he was unable to give a straight and direct answer about whether or not NATO was still going to be a thing in the future. And that's what that question is, by the way, the U.S. security guarantee for Europe Is NATO. That's essentially what the North Atlantic Treaty Organization does. So, hesitation about answering that question is hesitation to discuss the future of NATO, the very same NATO we've been told by the illegitimate regime has been strengthened and unified through the work of the illegitimate president. Those are three major narrative shifts right there. France not getting involved in China Taiwan. A new focus on the sovereignty of Europe, the sovereignty of France, no longer willing to be the followers of whatever the global regime as branded in the United States is doing, and the total erosion of NATO power and credibility to the point where Macron doesn't even want to claim it anymore. And then I followed that up discussing Saudi Arabia and the recent choices by the kingdom in terms of the oil prices, as well as the recent developments in peace relations in the Middle East, in Saudi's relationship with China, the fact that China is actually facilitating peace agreements in the Middle East. All of that is a very big deal. And Mohammed bin Salman has said he is no longer worried about pleasing the United States, which, again, is just a branded linguistic mechanism for the global regime at this point. You have to remember, everything is two things, factions in each and every country, the global regime versus sovereign nationals and sovereign individuals. In context, the purpose of talking about the United States is to signify the global regime. Saudi Arabia has made it very clear that they are going to do no one's bidding. And so I went through all of this to suggest that this is further evidence of the necessary and inevitable Emergence of a multipolar world order, replacing the unipolar world order, the global world order, the liberal world order, the regime world order, global neo-feudalist communism. And with it, an obvious end to human liberty, the emergence of the technocracy, the ability to track everything you do, the social credit scores, the cashless central bank digital currency. That whole agenda is the neo-feudalist global communist agenda, the agenda of the regime. And all of that is based on the power of the regime's fiat currency, currently branded the U.S. dollar. Countries around the world are de-dollarizing. They are setting up their own systems of trade, leaving the global fiat dollar aside. And it seems that we are well past the point where the regime can control or stop any of this. These countries, one by one, leaving their global alliance as branded in the United States and leaving the dollar as the global reserve currency, that's not a coincidence. It's not an accident, and it's not the sort of thing that happens when the regime is in full control. So I post yesterday's episode around, I don't know, what was it? three thirty four p.m. Eastern and a few hours later, eight p.m. Eastern, Tucker Carlson tonight comes on and there is an interview of President Donald J. Trump. And I think it's absolutely worthwhile that everyone take the time and watch that just for the record. I'm not going to go through the entire thing, but it was packed with interesting information, all sorts of little tidbits that we haven't really heard From Trump before and all of it tracks with the picture we've been tracking for a very long time. He had some interesting comments about his uncle, John Trump, the former MIT physicist. He talked about a range of geopolitical issues, all of which suggest the emergence of the multipolar world and the utter collapse and defeat of the regime, which is why the media is not focusing on any of that stuff. And instead, the DeSantis simp operation today is focused on comments Donald Trump made about Gavin Newsom. They're very worried that Donald Trump has been fooled by Gavin Newsom. How could he say anything even approaching nice about Gavin Newsom? And apparently these normies and morons still don't understand that Donald Trump is up there manipulating a narrative and changing leveraged positions in a constant and ongoing negotiation with the country and with his adversaries. The DeSantis simps are trying to set up a race that looks like Ron DeSantis versus Gavin Newsom. That's their dream. That's the program. That's what they want to see emerge. And Donald Trump just made that impossible for them. Out of all the things they could have focused on from that interview, they go after this one. Even if they properly understood What Donald Trump was saying at any point when he says it, they would still be absolutely wrong to focus on this nonsense. But that aside, I do want to play one clip from the interview last night because a mere four or five hours after I went through all of this on the podcast, Donald Trump says this. So how would you do that now? Well, now, so you have a problem. You got this crazy world is blowing up and the United States has absolutely no say and Macron who's a friend of mine is over with China kissing his ass, okay, in China. I said, France is now going to China. Uh, You take a look at Saudi Arabia, look at what happened. They're great people. They wanted to help us. He goes over and gets a fist pump. You know what a fist pump means? Don't shake my hand because your hand's dirty. That's what a fist pump is. They got it and they were so insulted. Do you understand that? Yes. Oh, I don't want to shake your hand. Let's go fist pump. Kind of magical, isn't it? Brings up France, brings up Saudi Arabia to make the same exact point. No one respects the illegitimate regime. They don't even factor Joe Biden into their calculations. Everyone has simply moved on. If we didn't have the mainstream media lying to everybody all the time, people would actually be able to simply see this in the world. As I said yesterday, all you have to do is notice. It's right there. Trump made the same exact connection I made on the podcast yesterday. And he even mentioned the fist bump. Now, I'm not suggesting he listened to my podcast and took the ideas from it. What I'm saying is this is happening because it all tracks because we are right about what's happening. And honestly, at this point, I don't think anything could possibly be more obvious. I didn't just get lucky. This is what is really happening out there. And he called Macron his friend. He also said very nice things about Xi. He said very nice things about Mohammed bin Salman. He knows who the smart people around the world are who are working toward the multipolar order. The only way to bring down the global regime is to put something else in its place And they're not going to just simply replace one one world order with another one world order. So the idea that we were ever headed toward a world that the U.S. would just control and dominate as it was in our perception. Right. Again, the United States in that context is just the branding of the global regime. We are the country that enacts the agenda of the global regime. And we have been for decades. While we might be the most powerful country among the countries involved in the global regime, what difference could that possibly make? It's all the same thing. What pride will we take in our country when there are no more borders and there are no more countries because it's just one big open world with free travel, free immigration. And of course, immigration is a slave trade. They're just going to move people around to wherever they need them. That world doesn't work. Also, the United States has no reason to be threatened by the emergence of a multipolar world order. If you think that Donald Trump hasn't used his leverage as president, and by the way, since and by the way, in the future to apply America first interests to the emergence of this multipolar world, I would suggest you have no idea what's going on. Everybody still likes to flirt with the idea that Donald Trump is stupid or Donald Trump is weak. He doesn't know what he's doing. Well, he's had all of the most powerful forces in the entire world contesting him at each and every turn for almost eight years now and probably a lot longer. And he not only had an extraordinarily successful presidency, he is still the most popular politician in the country by a long shot. They thought he would go away and he didn't. They thought we would go away, and we didn't. They are still trying to separate MAGA from Trump, make it so that he doesn't have any real support anymore, which is why they attack him all the time, including the DeSantis simps, Con Inc., and the GOP establishment, and elite. All of them want to get rid of Trump. Why is that? Well, the obvious answer is that they support the regime, and they don't want Trump to tear that regime down and allow the multipolar world to emerge. Are they scared? That the United States can't compete in a multipolar world. We have amazing land. We have amazing innovative people who work hard and want to build better lives for themselves and their families. We have all the resources we could ever possibly imagine. We can simply compete in a meritocratic world and still win. We don't need to use our military to take over other countries and steal their resources. We don't need the global regime's fiat dollar to be able to manipulate other countries into doing what we want. And the truth is, for as long as we are subjects of the global regime, then we are just a vassal state ourselves and we are doing the regime's bidding. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the United States of America I was raised believing in. And unless we want to give up on that entirely and submit to the future the regime has planned for us, well, we damn well better fight for Donald Trump. Okay, so last week, a Trump appointed U.S. district judge ordered the FDA to halt their approval of an abortion pill called Mifepristone or something based on a lawsuit that is currently before the court about the drug's safety. And the judge granted them a week to appeal. We'll see what happens with that. But an entirely new narrative has emerged from the communists. And who better to explain the logic behind it than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez?
2: Has been thought, I believe, given to this. Senator Ron Wyden has already issued statements, uh, for example, advising what we should do in a situation like this, which I concur, which is that I believe that the Biden administration should ignore uh, this ruling. I think that we, you know, the courts have the legitimacy and they rely on the legitimacy of their rulings. And what they are currently doing is engaged in an unprecedented and dramatic erosion Of the legitimacy of the courts they it it is the justices themselves through the deeply partisan and unfounded nature of these rulings that are undermining their own enforcement
0: so you're saying the biden administration should ignore this court but what does that look like what does that actually mean
2: you know i think the interesting thing when it comes to a ruling is that it relies on enforcement and it is up to the biden administration to enforce to choose whether or not to enforce such a ruling.
0: So there we have it. You do not have to obey the courts if you don't like the way they ruled. And let's be clear about what this is. This drug that is seeking FDA approval has been shown to be unsafe and they want it pushed through anyhow. They think the court is not allowed to stop them. What does that sound like? Well, we've just seen An unnecessary injection of a toxic experimental substance that can't protect you from a disease that can't kill you, pushed through all the regulating agencies that are captured by the pharma industry, approved of by politicians who are similarly captured by the pharma industry. And now the drug safety is no longer a standard upon which the courts would even be justified in slowing down an FDA approval. That's where we are. Now, obviously, they love abortion and they don't want anything in the world to stop the ability to have abortions anywhere as easily as possible all the time at any stage in pregnancy. They support all that stuff. I'm not misrepresenting their position. That's their real position. They can pretend they are more nuanced about it, But the truth is, they aren't. And you only end up at one place. Either you're totally okay with all of that or you're not. Anytime you try to scale that back, you have already accepted our argument that there is something wrong with all of that. She's claiming that the courts are actively engaged in an unprecedented erosion of their own legitimacy due to this decision and, of course, other decisions and other Claims about the court's legitimacy. They don't like that Donald Trump put three people in there. They don't like that Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland never got pushed through. They call the court illegitimate every time they disagree with what the court decides. They're even trying to tear down Justice Clarence Thomas for going on vacations in his friend Harlan Crow's private plane while Liberal justices go on trips all the time at the expense of very wealthy regime donors and organizations. She's calling what the justices are doing partisan and political. But everything these people do is nakedly partisan and political, not on behalf of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, but on behalf of the Uniparty, on behalf of the global regime everything they do divides along that line. Does it support the regime? Does it go against the regime? Let me know when you find an example of these people going against the global regime. They pretend that's what they're always doing. They're fighting against a system of power. Republicans tell you Democrats are in power. We're going to fight the Democrats. Democrats will tell you that Republicans are in power. And even when they're not in power, they have enough power to stop the Democrats. Therefore, we need to fight the Republicans. That's why the uniparty exists. It's to give the illusion of choice. They pretend they're fighting for their side while their opponents pretend they're fighting for their side. And the truth is they're both fighting for the regime and they're fighting against you And they're willing to tear down any institution in order to wage that battle. Now, the judiciary, by and large, is completely corrupt, just as other branches of the government are. So I'm fine with that point, but at least apply it consistently if you're going to hijack the judiciary system. To go after your political opponents and if you're going to use the methods of lawfare to prevent the review of an obviously illegitimate election where there's no way Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes, then you can't turn around and say other people have hijacked the judiciary and that because of the decisions they make. No one has to follow them anymore. The executive branch just gets to decide whatever it does. The court makes a decision, and it has no means of enforcing that decision if the executive branch refuses to go along with it. She's essentially just highlighting the illegitimacy of the entire thing. And again, to that extent, I can get fully on board with what AOC is saying. But the truth is she couldn't say this in a system that wasn't run completely through stolen elections. In a properly functioning system, if they got a decision from the courts that they didn't like, they could appeal it and appeal it and appeal it and go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And if they didn't like that decision, then the choice is to wait until they're back in power at the right points to be able to replace the Supreme Court justices who are leaving with ones that you think are better and you can get through the Senate. We just watched the end of the Roe versus Wade era. 50 years of free and open abortions based on unconstitutional, terrible principles, terrible legal logic and a moral abomination. It wasn't reversed until the court shifted and they litigated case after case based on Roe versus Wade precedent. Laws are not meant to be changed by the courts. The legislature is supposed to write the law. The president is supposed to sign off on that law, making it law. The executive branch is there to enforce that law and the courts exist to decide if it's constitutional. AOC is making the argument that the Constitution itself does not matter and that the legitimacy of our institutions depends entirely on their willingness to go along with the global regime's agenda. Again, this isn't just about abortion. It's not just about this drug. It's not just about the FDA. She's now speaking a new principle of the Uniparty and a terrible and destructive one at that. And she's not alone. She mentioned Senator Ron Wyden. He tweeted this out on the same day on Friday when that interview took place. He said this devastating ruling has no basis in law and will ban the most common method of abortion in every single state. President Biden can and must ignore this ruling and keep mifepristone on the market and accessible for every woman in America. It's weird that Ron Wyden cares more about access to abortion than he cares about whether or not the abortion drug is safe for the person taking it. It kind of blows up the argument that the pro-abortionists make saying this is all about women And their choices, and their bodies, and their lives. Hard to make that argument when you're willing to poison them just to keep abortion access free for everyone. But there's another funny level to this. We've endured nearly two and a half years of being told by deranged and ignorant communists that the fact that courts haven't overturned the 2020 election means the 2020 election wasn't stolen. Now, they generally have not looked into any of these cases. They don't know the facts of the cases. They don't know anything about the election process, the system that is in place and all the complications of it that make it clear the system was designed to create loopholes so that they could steal elections. That's why the system exists as it does. There's no argument for efficiency. There's no argument for accuracy. There's no argument for transparency. The system exists to steal elections, and they tell us that couldn't have happened because the courts threw cases out on procedural issues. They believe that if there was actually election fraud, then the courts would have just let the world know about that. But most of the courts didn't bother looking at the evidence. Many of the courts that did look at the evidence decided in our direction and the election fraud thing is still going to this day, which is proof that this isn't some fringe theory. More than half the country is on our side on this. But nonetheless, we're still told that the court's decisions are one of the most important deciding factors. They themselves, these decisions are proof that there was no election fraud. Well, how can you say that if you are saying that the court's legitimacy depends only on the decisions they make and then secondarily, whether or not those decisions line up with the regime's agenda? If the courts start going the wrong direction, then they're not legitimate anymore. Well, if you're delegitimizing the courts, then what makes their election fraud decisions legitimate? Why should anyone trust the courts with that decision? And again, I'm totally fine with AOC making this argument. It's quite clear that courts don't always get it right. Even when they are trying hard to do the right thing, they don't always get it right. Nothing in the world should be more obvious than that. And that's true even for the left. They go out and riot and loot and burn down cities when they hear results from court cases they don't like. They had an entire summer of love planned for last summer after the Dobbs decision overriding Roe versus Wade came down. That just never really materialized. Why? Why? because the nation doesn't care about that issue enough to go out in the streets and fight for it. It is just one big illusion from the mainstream media. The majority of the country does not support the rampant proliferation of abortion. But the most insane part is that she is now saying there should not be the checks and the balances, the separation of powers. If the president doesn't like what the court says, They just get to override the courts and do it anyway because the courts don't have an enforcement mechanism. Just what kind of world are these communists trying to create? Gotta say, it sounds an awful lot like a lawless authoritarian dictatorship. The state gets to do whatever it wants without anyone having the ability to slow them down and without free and fair elections. How is that ever supposed to stop? And the authoritarian impulse to control and dominate everything is not unique to AOC. This is the Wall Street Journal's editorial board on Monday. Direct democracy dies in California. Democrats hold every statewide office in California and super majorities in California's legislature. Apparently, that's not enough. So now they are seeking to entrench this power by making it harder for voters to block their laws. Which party is really undermining voter rights? Unions and green groups are pushing legislation that would create enormous new hurdles to ballot initiatives that repeal or alter laws passed within the prior two years. The so-called ballot reforms are intended to stop a, quote, well-powered set of interests that often undermine the collective will of the people of California, says the bill's assembly sponsor, Isaac Bryant. Now, the ballot initiative process in California is a mess. There should not be a ballot initiative process ever anywhere, at least until we know the elections are legitimate. Right now, states that put ballot initiatives up just steal those ballot initiatives. They literally don't need to do anything to implement whatever laws they want. They get enough signatures to get the ballot initiative put up for a vote, and then they just make up the vote and bingo, bango, here's your new law. Everybody must abide by it. Great government. In California, they love this because it means that the elected, in quotes, representatives don't have responsibility or accountability for any of it. By well-powered interests, he means the voters. His legislation would undermine direct democracy while cementing union and progressive power. For starters, it would limit the time that campaigns seeking to block state laws have to collect some 550,000 signatures to 90 days. Other ballot campaigns would continue to have 180 days. Ballot campaigns often pay workers to collect signatures because it can be tough to find enough volunteers to do so. And you're kind of already admitting that the ballot initiatives are a workaround for unpopular things that the voters don't want. When voters want things, it's not that hard to find people to support them. The bill would require that at least 10% of signatures be obtained by volunteers. Paid signature gatherers would also have to register with and receive training from the state. These requirements would only apply to initiatives seeking to cancel state laws. The goal is to limit the supply of signature gatherers that businesses can hire for referenda campaigns. The kicker is that the bill exempts unions so they can rely entirely on paid organizers to collect signatures in the unlikely event Democrats pass a law unions oppose and want to mount a referendum to overturn it. Petitions would also have to follow a strict template, including a sheet with the list of the, quote, official top funders at the top in boldface 16 point font. In addition to signing their names and addresses to the petition, voters would have to initial and date that they reviewed the top funders. Signatures of voters who don't would be invalidated. Referendum campaigns would also have to immediately note any changes to their top funders. Signatures on allegedly out-of-date petition sheets would be invalidated. So if the funders change, everyone who has signed prior, those are all invalid. The sum of all this is to create a procedural minefield that voters would have to navigate if they want to challenge a new state law, make even a small paperwork mistake, and tens of thousands of voter signatures could get nullified. As progressive power in Sacramento grows, voters are increasingly turning to referenda to restrain the one-party Democratic state. Voters approved an initiative in 2020 that exempted many gig economy workers from the state's AB5 law which reclassified many independent contractors as workers. The same year, they blocked a law that ended cash bail. An initiative to repeal a new law that bars new oil drilling in much of the state has qualified for the November 2024 ballot, as has a referendum to block a state law creating a state council to dictate wages and work conditions at fast food joints. But Democratic lawmakers and their friends don't want to give voters a say over the laws they pass. Progressives are trying to disenfranchise voters on the sly, trusting that the press won't report on and oppose their attack on democracy because it rarely does. Hey, Wall Street Journal, that includes you. You guys have covered up election fraud for two and a half years. But again, you want proof that there's no Democrat majority, not even in California? Here's your proof. They need to continue manipulating this system to stay in power, even with stolen elections and exclusively Democrats in control. California's election results are preposterous. The ballot referendum system is preposterous. Californian citizens gathered enough signatures to vote to recall Gavin Newsom, and they stole that one, too. The results, as always, were preposterous. But it's not enough because they got to have it all. And they have to make sure that no matter what happens, that power won't go away. California is essentially a one party, third world communist dictatorship. Speaking of our obviously stolen elections, this is from Monday NBC News. Hounded by baseless voter fraud allegations, an entire county's election staff in Virginia. Lindsay Taylor loved running elections here. The previous registrar had spent nearly three decades in the job and Taylor 37 hoped to do the same when she was hired in 2019. She loved her staff and the volunteer poll workers, and she took pride in the detail oriented work. She implemented dozens of new laws in 2020 ran elections through the pandemic and impressed many in the rural, conservative, tight-knit community of Buckingham County. But then the voter fraud claims started. Man, that's crazy that people are worried about their elections after all those new laws got passed during the pandemic by this lady. In January, the GOP assumed control of the Buckingham County Electoral Board that oversees her office and local Republicans began advancing baseless voter fraud claims that baffled her. The electoral board made it clear they wanted her out of the job. There were people saying that they had heard all these rumors, that the attorney general was going to indict me, Taylor said, days after leaving the office for the last time. Mentally, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) Three weeks ago, frustrated and heartbroken, Taylor... Along with two part-time staffers quit. Their resignations followed a deputy registrar who left in February, citing the same conflict. The four departures left residents without a functioning registrar's office. There was no way to register to vote or certify candidate paperwork, at least temporarily. Oh, the horror! A state elections worker arrived in town a week later to try to pick up the pieces, looking through drawers and opening the mail as the two remaining members of the electoral board, both Republicans, because the one Democrat had also recently quit, began the difficult process of restaffing a completely barren department. It's just sad that the big lie has come to Buckingham said Margaret Thomas, who has worked as the general register in Buckingham County for more than 28 years before retiring and before it was never here. Years after former President Donald Trump began pushing his lies about stolen elections, communities like Buckingham County are grappling with the aftershocks. What happens when election denialism drives out the people needed to keep local democracy running? Well, considering that these people have implemented and run a system designed to steal elections, probably only good things happen when they are driven out of their jobs. Stealing elections is by no definition keeping local democracy running. You've also got to love the fact that she is leaving office due to election fraud claims and claims about her being indicted. You got to wonder if maybe it's the threat of indictment that is driving her from her office or maybe a deal that was made. If you leave office, you will not be indicted. Otherwise, good luck. Obviously, that's speculation and we can't know about that right now, but we shall see. A lot of election officials I've talked to are asking themselves, why am I doing this? Why am I getting paid like a civil servant to be constantly harassed, said David Becker, executive director of the nonpartisan Center for Election Innovation and Research that helps support election officials. Whether it's the intent or not, the effect is to drive a lot of these public servants, upon whom we've relied for decades in some cases, out of the field, which will leave elections more vulnerable than they've ever been before. So David Becker of CEIR, wants these election officials to remain in place. He needs the people who have been here for decades implementing this election fraud system. But who is David Becker and what is the Center for Election Innovation and Research? We've talked about them before. First off, there should be no need for election innovation. If anything, we should be removing election innovation as fast as possible. handmarked, paper ballots cast on the day of the election in small local voting centers, hand counted, fully transparent the whole time with voter ID and remove every single other innovation. This is from influencewatch.org. Look up CEIR. It is on here. In August 2020, Facebook founder and billionaire Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan announced they were donating $50 million to CEIR a sum 50 times larger than the organization's 2017 revenues. The actual amount of the grant was later confirmed to be much larger, totaling $69.5 million, according to the Zuckerberg Chan Initiatives website. CEIR is run by David Becker, an election law attorney and former People for the American Way activist who served in the voting section of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division in the early 2000s. In 2020, the former acting head of the civil rights division described Becker as a, quote, hardcore leftist who, quote, couldn't stand conservatives and, quote, should have been disbarred for unethical behavior, but still worthy of being quoted in NBC News articles. And those aren't the only philanthropist, globalist NGOs and foundations supporting CEIR. They also have the Democracy Fund on board, the Hopewell Fund, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the same philanthropists and foundations involved in all of the other nonsense. In Virginia, all of the state's general registrars serve four-year terms that end June 30th, and the electoral boards around the state that will decide whether to keep their registrars are controlled by the party of the governor. This year, thanks to Governor Glenn Youngkin's 2021 win, Republicans assumed control of all 133 of these boards. Members are party nominated, but they are supposed to operate as nonpartisan, according to the Virginia Department of Elections. And that always works. Just call something nonpartisan. I mean, the CEIR is nonpartisan, according to the paragraph just above NBC News considers David Becker's organization to be nonpartisan, just because they claim to be nonpartisan, and of course, in the Democrat-Republican paradigm, that actually makes some amount of sense. But when you realize that it's just the Uniparty, they are actually quite partisan, all in favor of the Uniparty. Buckingham County is rural and conservative. There are more cattle than registered voters. In 2020, 55.9 percent of voters cast ballots for Trump, and Republican Representative Bob Good won the county by nearly 30 points in 2022. Conflict between local Republicans and the registrar began simmering around the midterm elections and boiled over at a January 4th meeting of the Buckingham County Electoral Board after the GOP assumed control. Buckingham County Republican Committee Chairwoman Ramona Christian, who had hand-selected two new members, Sandy Banks Burtwell and Andy Marchetti, on the three-person board presented a long list of complaints about the previous year's elections. Her allegations included not enough Republican poll workers. A majority were unaffiliated with either party, a common practice for poll workers in the county. You see that you just say they're not affiliated. Then you can stack them with people who only lean in one direction and you can say, hey, why are you upset? There are no Republicans in this mix. We selected from a group of people who are nonpartisan. But back to the allegations. Ballots that arrived at the registrar's office after she expected them to and a close school board race with absentee ballots she claimed suggested fraud. Democrat Michelle Ford won that race by nine votes. In her remarks, she name checked Taylor multiple times, as well as other residents who had served as poll workers and asked for an audit of some ballots. Why do we have all these infractions? Why don't you know the law? said another local Republican, Teresa McManus, according to a video of part of the meeting obtained by NBC News. I am putting you on notice for treason, she added. But the incidents Christian had reported were not crimes, let alone treasonous offenses. Some appeared to be procedural snafus, while others were misunderstandings on behalf of the observers. See, no one meant to do all those things. And they're not crimes. They're just like little mistakes. And so, of course, it's not treason, you know, stealing elections. It's just it's all a mistake when it happens all the time. The Commonwealth's attorney in Buckingham County, Kemper Beasley, the who was elected as an independent, said a resident brought him the allegations and he found no evidence of criminal election fraud. I couldn't find anything criminal, Beasley told NBC News last week. The former registrar, in my mind, did an excellent job. Oh, hey, Kemper Beasley III, you sound very independent. The Virginia Attorney General's office confirmed that Christian had contacted them, but said they had not and were not investigating election issues in Buckingham County. Christian, who posed for a photo with Banks Burtwell and election conspiracy theorist, and my pillow CEO Mike Lindell at a conference in March declined interview requests but shared a statement with NBC News in which she said that she was concerned with the lack of party parity in Buckingham County's poll workers the Buckingham County Office of Elections failed to comply with this requirement which i discussed with Ms Taylor just prior to election day along with suggested corrective actions All were rejected, and the election proceeded without conforming to the parity requirement, Christian said. Virginia law says there should be parity in poll workers' political affiliations, and not more than a third should be unaffiliated with either party if practicable. Taylor said neither party had nominated poll workers at the start of the year, and the majority of the volunteers preferred to identify as unaffiliated. Thomas, the former registrar, said nearly all her poll workers identified as unaffiliated. The electoral board, which was controlled by Democrats, at the same time preferred staffing elections with their most experienced poll workers, and Taylor organized the precincts accordingly. So they ignored party parity requirements And they just used the people who had been there the longest, who had been working with this system of election fraud the longest. That was supposed to be okay. Yes, we can ignore these laws and regulations because we're focused on experience. Don't you see that as a worthwhile justification for ignoring the laws as written? The rest of her complaints, Christian said documented relatively minor incidents that didn't affect the outcome of the election, but which illustrated the need for additional training for election officials and poll watchers. My concerns did not center around allegations of voter fraud. I trust the outcome of elections in our jurisdiction, she added, even though she'd specifically suggested there was fraud in a school board race. Asked for an audit and told NBC News in an earlier email that she'd been in contact with the attorney general's election integrity unit about her concerns. The allegations, minor or not, quickly consumed the community electoral board meetings, historically sleepy affairs, drawing one or two members of the public quickly became packed and contentious events. Isn't that an obvious proof of the fact that people know their elections are stolen. I love when the mainstream media just pretends that the forces of evil have just summoned all of the conspiracy theorists. And now they're at their local meetings where they're not supposed to go. This is hard evidence of people waking up and getting involved. And this article is super long, so I'm just going to go down to the end. Feel free to go read that on your own time if you like. The board members now face the difficult task of restaffing an office they've worked with for mere weeks. Serwinski was appointed to the electoral board ahead of the March 10th meeting. Banks Bertwell took up her position in January. The electoral board's most experienced member, Democrat Gail Braxton, recently stepped down as well at the most recent meeting of the Buckingham County electoral board in late March, Braxton said the board had completed an investigation into the issues Christian raised and found no violations of law. Several days later, she resigned from the electoral board. Larry Davis, a Democrat who served on the board through the end of last year, when Youngkin's election forced him out, said he declined a request from his party to fill Braxton's seat on the electoral board. Still, he's worried about how the election in November will go. The next registrar will have zero experience. The board won't have any experience. I would say at least half of the officers in elections are going to quit, he said, referring to poll workers. Who's going to work the election? Well, in a place that has more cows than people, I'm going to bet they can figure it out. I'm going to bet they can use hands counted, hand marked ballots and just simply count them. And produce a result that accurately reflects the will of the voters. How hard can that possibly be in a town with more cows than people? And hey, thanks for letting us know details like that, NBC News. As you're trying to pretend that great experience is needed to accomplish this gargantuan task, again, just uninnovate the whole thing and you'll figure it all out. And speaking of election fraudsters who are going to just go it on their own, this is from Just the News today. DNC parts ways with Democrat election lawyer Mark Elias, known for Russian collusion role. The Democratic National Committee has ended its professional arrangement with progressive election lawyer Mark Elias, infamous for his role in the Russia 2016 collusion story. Punchbowl News reported Wednesday that the DNC is parting ways with Elias over, quote, a number of strategic disagreements, according to sources familiar with the internal deliberations. Now, Mark Elias is one of the most corrupt communists in the country, and he is the number one guy leading the lawfare charge on the regime's behalf to eliminate election fraud cases. We'll see how this story develops, but this is a pretty significant shift. Elias, while at the firm Perkins Coie, was hired in 2015 to serve as general counsel for the 2016 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. Records show that he hired Fusion GPS on behalf of the DNC and the Clinton campaign to create the research that resulted in the now debunked Steele dossier. Opposition research created to smear Republican Donald Trump and his 2016 presidential campaign. Elias has represented the DNC since 2009 and essentially every Washington Democrat group, including the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and the Democratic Attorney General Association through his firm, the Elias Law Group. His law firm was paid over two million dollars by the DNC from November 2021 to February 2023, according to the Federal Election Commission data. The DNC works with a number of law firms on voting rights, litigation, compliance, contracting and more. A spokesperson for the group told Punchbowl, the DNC is appreciative of Elias Law Group's years of work in service of the values we share. A spokesperson for the Elias Law Firm said it's, quote, proud of the work it has done for the DNC. We look forward to continuing to represent the Democratic Party as well as helping citizens vote and progressives make change. Neither responded to requests for comment Wednesday by Just the News. Elias tweeted on Tuesday that his, quote, team is litigating 45 pro democracy cases in 18 states. His law group, which he started in 2021, quote, is the nation's largest law firm focused on representing the Democratic Party, Democratic campaigns, nonprofit organizations, and individuals committed to securing a progressive future, according to its website. So Mark Elias is basically the lawfare hatchet man for all of the Democratic elite and the uniparty elite, particularly when it comes to going after Donald Trump and when it comes to cementing the election fraud system and making sure nothing can interfere with it. He is one of the key figures in preserving this illegitimate uniparty power. The purpose of Mark Elias on the public stage, his purpose is, is to manipulate the already infiltrated judiciary that AOC is now saying is illegitimate based on the decisions they make. And every now and then you have to think, why doesn't this stuff backfire sooner? Why do these people just feel that they can get away with whatever they want, do whatever they want? Well, it's because they've stacked up the entire system and they pick and choose when to go along with the law. There are two systems of justice. There are two systems of law. There may as well be two constitutions or zero constitutions because it's quite clear that none of them care about the actual constitution whatsoever. And what sorts of things are they getting away with for now? Well, this is also from just the news today. Bank records show millions in transactions between Hunter Biden and China firms, according to Senator Ron Johnson. Wisconsin GOP Senator Ron Johnson says the Chinese American financial institution, Cathay Bank, has given Senate Republicans records showing millions of dollars going from Chinese companies to President Biden's son, Hunter. So I guess that's what those subpoenas to the banks were for. This is probably why Representative Jamie Raskin, a.k.a. Friar Cuck, was getting so upset. Republicans and others started raising concerns during President Biden's successful 2020 White House campaign, if not earlier, that Hunter Biden used the family name and influence while his father was vice president to make millions in overseas business deals, which also could have compromised U.S. national security. Johnson told The Washington Times the records show the Biden family involved with the now defunct CEFC China Energy, which had connections to the Chinese Communist Party and, of course, their Belt and Road initiative. The firm gave a million dollars to Hudson West 3, which was a joint venture owned by Hunter Biden and Gong Wen Dong, who is a business associate of CEFC's founder and chairman Yi Jinming. According to bank records in my mind, it's the Chinese government telling Joe Biden, we got the goods on you, buddy, and we're willing to dish it up. Johnson said the records provided by the bank also include those from the president's brother, James Biden. Cathay bank has offices in Los Angeles and China. Johnson says the bank turned over records to him and fellow GOP Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Other banks have denied the senators requests for the records. So naturally, as we already know, the Biden family has been in the business of political corruption and criminality, selling out the interests of Joe Biden's constituents and then the United States of America to the highest bidder decades of this hundreds of millions of dollars passed through their little shell companies, and they just kept getting away with it because Joe Biden gets to get away with whatever he wants for now. But the interesting thing about this is the Chinese American Bank handed over these bank records proving Joe Biden's dealings with CEFC, a CCP linked energy company, even though doing so implicates the fake president who is a stooge of the Chinese Communist Party and above that, obviously, the global regime. Now, why would President Xi do that? Oh, it's because he's not doing things in favor of the global regime. It's almost like there's two things happening in China, just like there are everywhere else. And now you can see that situation developing right before your eyes and see it reflected in the real world. We've been talking about this for a couple of years now, at least. And every day we see examples of powerful people in this world getting away with things, for a very, very long time, at least for now. We know that not only is Joe Biden totally corrupt, one of the most corrupt politicians in American history, maybe world history, but we also know that he is a demented pervert who is caught on video constantly sniffing and groping children. We know that in Ashley Biden's own diary, her journal, she talks about taking showers with her father that were probably not appropriate at a very young age. And you can see that for yourself. If you don't believe it, go to here's That'll take you to Marco Polo's website and you can find the transcribed version of Ashley Biden's diary. Of course, you can also see the real one, but just read the transcribed one because the real one is written in handwriting and kind of a mess. Joe Biden is absolutely a pedophile, and it turns out that there are all sorts of powerful pedophiles in the world. We were told that that was a deranged conspiracy theory. That was just QAnon. Well, we got a perfect example this week of that being an outright lie designed to protect powerful pedophiles. This is from the Daily Mail, David Marcus. If the Pope asked a child to suck his tongue, he wouldn't be the Pope anymore. The Dalai Lama does it, and there's almost universal silence. It looks like child abuse, and the inaction is shameful. What a strange commentary on our times. One of the only prominent American voices reacting with the appropriate degree of disgust to a horrifying video of the Dalai Lama appearing to abuse a young boy is rapper Cardi B. If you haven't seen the viral footage of the Dalai Lama's February event in northern India, you should. It's shocking and the world cannot look away. The video shows the 87-year-old spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism, considered by his followers to be the living embodiment of the virtues of the religion and the reincarnation of the living Buddha, kissing a child on the lips and then asking the boy to suck my tongue. We must scream that this was not just flat out wrong. It appears to be sexual abuse. Cardi B tweeted in response to the sick display. This world is full of predators. They prey on the innocent, the ones who are most unknowing our children. And she's right about that. I cannot stand Cardi B. I hate her image. I hate her music. And I don't think she's a good person, not by any long stretch. I don't know what she's doing, interviewing politicians like Bernie Sanders back then. She literally talks about how when she was working as a stripper and prostitute, she used to drug men and rob them. She is not any sort of paragon of moral virtue, but she is right on this. And I guess I'm glad she's popularizing it. It would be much better if it were pretty much anybody else. And the singer's reward for stating this obvious and vital truth. She was pilloried on social media, threatened in her direct messages and made out to be some kind of bigot. While I may blanch at her lyrics, I applaud her courage, but I ask, where is the chorus? Why is the performer of WAP, if you don't know it, Google it, and he's right, I'd rather not say it, among few public people expressing fitting moral outrage and revulsion? Meanwhile, there are crickets from pro-Tibet Hollywood celebrities, like actor Richard Gere, who attended the Dalai Lama's 87th birthday party last year in India. Over at the New York Times, there's one lousy straight news report with the bizarrely milk toast headline, Dalai Lama apologizes over an exchange with a boy. Exchange? What a maddening perversion of the English language. An exchange suggests equity. A give and take. This was not that. This was one of the most powerful and influential men on earth, a leader of one of the world's five great religions, appearing to treat a child as a plaything. The Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, SNAP, a U.S.-based advocacy group for victims of spiritual and religious exploitation, hit the nail on the head. An 87-year-old man asking a young boy to perform a blatantly sexual act in a public setting is very disturbing. We feel it is important that every single person who sees, suspects, or suffers child sex crimes, regardless of the level of crime, contact law enforcement to report it. Correct. But this outcry may be falling on deaf ears. It took weeks for the Dalai Lama's office to even release a statement. They clearly wanted this to go away. This week, representatives of the Dalai Lama conceded that the leader of millions regrets the incident, but then went on to disturbingly explain it away. His holiness often teases people he meets in an innocent and playful way, they write, even in public and before cameras. So that's what he was doing. It was all a big joke. Sure, he asked a little kid as a powerful and revered figure whose parents hand the little kid over to because he is so powerful and revered to ask a child to suck his tongue, intentionally hoping that the child would suck his tongue. But don't worry. It's just a joke. All he ever wanted to do was kiss the small child on the lips and ask him to suck his tongue. He didn't really want it to happen. You see, it was just a joke. And the Marcus article goes on at length. But the crazy thing is a lot of people are shocked by this. They thought that the Dalai Lama was who he is portrayed to be. This peaceful, well-intentioned religious leader, himself a victim of oppression and fighting oppression. That's how the Dalai Lama has been presented to us. He's got all sorts of friends in the regime, from Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton to all of the various actors, people like Sean Penn, who continue to pop up all over the world with regime figures that he's just best friends with. They all go there. They make him look like the coolest person in the world. The Dalai Lama is directly connected to Keith Rainier of the Nexium cult. You can simply go research the brutal history of Tibet at the hands of the Dalai Lama, who is a CIA connected asset himself. Isn't it amazing how the worst of these people are portrayed as the best of these people? And isn't it amazing how many of them have these perversions? Why? Because they know they can get away with it. And it actually goes one step farther than that. These people do these things not only because they're sick and they can get away with it due to their power, but they are placed in positions of power due to the fact that they have this stuff in their personal history. So they can largely be controlled until they start doing it in public. And then things get a bit uncomfortable. This stuff is now being called a Chinese operation. They're just trying to trick people with all this. Outlets like Vice were attempting to defend him. They tweeted yesterday, many are worried the Chinese Communist Party propagandists are misusing the video to discredit the exiled leader. No, that's not misusing the video. That's using the video to discredit the leader because he deserves to be discredited. And again, you can go back and research this stuff. There's an article in Fortune with the headline, Behind the Scenes of the Dalai Lama's Early History with the CIA. It's very long, but well worth reading. The journalist Ben Norton tweeted out on Monday, Nazi SS officer Heinrich Harrer introduced the Dalai Lama to the U.S. Embassy in India which then worked with the CIA to support him and the Tibetan feudalist movement as an anti-communist tool to try to weaken China. And it's also worth noting that much of what is described as anti-communism can and should just be viewed in parallel to what we see from today's GOP establishment. They are ostensibly anti-communist. That is their reason for being. That's what creates the two sides. But the entire time they are helping to implement the agenda of the regime. So they get away with it because they're in power and they're in power because they are so personally, morally and politically corrupted and compromised. So how do we get out of all this? What hope do we have? Is anyone doing it right? And turns out there are people doing it right. One country going in the exact opposite direction of all this is El Salvador. This is the New York Times on Sunday. El Salvador decimated its ruthless gangs, but at what cost? What? Even the headline is shocking and hilarious. They decimated their ruthless gangs, but at what cost? When the MS-13 gang ran the neighborhood of Las Margaritas, One of its strongholds in El Salvador, there were rules you had to follow to stay alive. You couldn't wear the number eight because it was associated with the rival 18th Street gang. You couldn't wear the brand of sneakers the gangsters wore, and you could not under any circumstances call the police. People couldn't complain to the police because of what the boys would say, said Sandra Elizabeth Ingles, a longtime resident referring to the gang members. They became the authority in this system. El Salvador, the smallest country in Central America, was once known as the hemisphere's murder capital, with one of the highest homicide rates anywhere in the world outside of a war zone. But in the years since the government declared a state of emergency to quell gang violence, deploying the military onto the streets in force, the nation has undergone a remarkable transformation. Now children play soccer late into the evening on fields that were gang turf, Missing Glace gathers soil for her plants next to an abandoned building that residents say was used for gang killings. Homicides plunged extortion payments imposed by gangs on businesses and residents. Once an economy unto itself also declined, analysts said you can walk freely. Missing Glace said so much has changed. El Faro, El Salvador's leading news outlet, surveyed the country earlier this year and delivered a stunning assessment. The gangs largely do not exist. So they have this horrific gang problem, MS-13. MS-13 is a massive gang that operates in the United States, in Canada, in Mexico, all through Central America. They're involved in the trafficking of drugs and weapons and people, murder, money laundering, extortion, kidnapping, robbery, illegal immigration, prostitution. They do it all. And we can think of these cartels and these transnational gangs essentially as private armies of the global regime. They are participating in the slave trade and obviously in all of the forms of trafficking. Seth Rich's murder is even blamed on MS-13. But now the gangs essentially don't exist in El Salvador. How do you solve a problem like that When you know the gang is an asset of the global regime, if the global regime is in full power in a country as small as El Salvador. Back to the New York Times. That achievement, critics say, has come at an incalculable price. Mass arrests that swept up thousands of innocent people, the erosion of civil liberties, and the country's descent into an increasingly autocratic police state. They call every country, who doesn't do the bidding of the regime, and autocracy. Most Salvadorans appear willing to accept that deal. Fed up with the gangs that terrorized them and forced so many to flee to the United States, the vast majority of people here support the measures and the president behind them, surveys suggest. With approval ratings around 90%, El Salvador's president, the 41-year-old Naib Bukele, has become one of the world's most popular leaders and has earned fans across the Western Hemisphere. Part of that is because he has made Bitcoin legal tender. And the other part of that is that he is honest and open and communicates his actual priorities in a pretty based fashion. From what we know so far, Bukele is basically the model for young leaders around the world and not, quote unquote, global leaders. Hondurans chanted Mr. Bukele's name and cheered him at the inauguration last year of their president. One survey showed that people in Ecuador, where violence is rising, think more highly of Mr. Bukele than their own leaders. As politicians from Mexico to Guatemala vow to emulate Mr. Bukele's iron-fisted approach, critics have grown concerned that the country could become a model for a dangerous bargain, sacrificing civil liberties for safety. And naturally, the irony here is that the New York Times for years has explicitly promoted the sacrifice of civil liberties for safety. They did that all throughout covid. They did it in response to the very violent insurrection. They do it every time they justify and rationalize censorship. I remain incredibly pessimistic about what this means for the future of democracy in the region said Christine Wade, an El Salvador expert at Washington College in Maryland. The risk is that this becomes a popular model for other politicians to say, well, we could be providing you more security in exchange for you giving up some of your rights. No, you could just be providing security. One of the only purposes of having a government in the first place, enforcing the laws that keep people safe. If the government can't keep people safe, then there's no point in having a government. We're talking about gangs here. People aren't being asked to sacrifice their civil liberties. That is the claim that justifies the protection of these very gangs at the expense of the countries. Now, why would they be doing that? The gangs must in some way be useful for these people. They are explicitly making the case that other countries in Central America should not be trying to shut down MS-13. This is the New York Times doing that. The Salvadoran government has arrested more than 65,000 people over the last year, including children as young as 12, more than doubling the prison population. By the government's own count, more than 5,000 people with no connection to gangs were put behind bars and eventually released. At least 90 people died in custody, the government has said. Human rights groups have documented mass arbitrary arrests, as well as extreme overcrowding in prisons and reports of torture by guards. Oh, the MS-13 gang members aren't comfortable enough in prison. El Salvador's vice president, Felix Ulloa, said in an interview that reports of abuse by the authorities were being investigated and that the innocent people who had been arrested were being released. There's a margin of error, he said, defending what he called an almost surgically impeccable strategy. People can go out, they buy things, go to the movies, to the beach, they see soccer games, he said. We've given people back their liberty. And let's just pause for a second on that total number. 65,000 people arrested in this effort. That's a whole lot of people involved in gang activity. We pretend that it's not possible to actually go after all of these criminals at some point once the conditions for doing so are met. But it's simply not true. El Salvador can accomplish it. Much smaller country, many fewer resources to do this sort of thing. We can absolutely do this in the United States when the right time comes. El Salvador's population is about six and a half million. It's about one fiftieth the size of the United States of America and they can arrest 65,000 people. Multiply that times 50, and we're talking about 3.3 million people. So good luck, regime commies. When the time is right, we will have the ability and the political will to do exactly the same thing. In what were once some of the most dangerous parts of the country, abandoned houses that belong to gang members are being renovated and reoccupied by new tenants. On the streets of Las Margaritas, a neighborhood in the once horrifically violent municipality of Soyapango. In the center of the country, cars now park without the owners paying $10 a month to the gang extortionists. Before the crackdown, no one visited the municipality's major outdoor market without permission from gang henchmen, vendors said. Now it overflows with whoever wants to be there. When Ms. Inglace used to tell people where she lived, on a dead-end street in Las Margaritas, they would gasp. They would say, I know you live in Vietnam, recalls Miss Inglace, ladling mango juice into a bag for a young boy at the stand. She runs outside her home. She used to stare across the street at graffiti that said, see here and shut up. Miss Inglace said a phrase used by the gang to intimidate residents into keeping quiet about its crimes. Miss Inglace said she learned to keep her head down. The fewer things you saw, the fewer problems you had. An image of a bird was recently painted over the graffiti. Juan Hernandez, 41, had not set foot on a soccer field blocks from his house in 10 years. It was turf, he said, meaning gang territory. You'd get hit by the bullets left and right. Now he's using the field to teach his 12-year-old son to play. He tells me I want to learn how. I tell him let's go, Mr. Hernandez said. The catalyst for the new reality emerging in El Salvador was a weekend rampage by criminals In March of last year, that left more than 80 dead. U.S. officials have said that long before the crackdown, Mr. Bukele's administration negotiated a deal with gang leaders to lower homicides in exchange for benefits, including better prison conditions. Many analysts believe the spike in violence was a sign of a breakdown in the purported act. Mr. Bukele has denied making any such agreement. After the March 15th killings, El Salvador's ruling party controlled legislature declared a state of emergency. The military flooded gang areas across the country, rounding up 13,000 people within a few weeks. One of them was Morena Guadalupe de Sandoval's son, whom she says she has not seen or spoken to since he was arrested on his way home from work in the capital about a year ago. She says the authorities have accused him of being part of a criminal group, something she denies. Every three months, she visits the Izalco prison where she says her son, Jonathan Gonzalez Lopez, is being held, a facility in the west of the country where torture has been reported. She begs for information about him. Sometimes she takes his wife and their two-year-old son. The most she ever hears is that he's still locked up. Depression sets in, Miss DeSandoval said. I get in a bad state when I think about how I can't see him and I can't talk to him. In a report released in December, Human Rights Watch and a Salvadoran organization called Cristosal interviewed people detained during the crackdown who were later released, who described the horrors they witnessed inside the country's prison system, beatings, deaths, starvation rations. One said guards held his head underwater so he could not breathe, the report said. Another said he was given two tortillas to eat per day, which he had to share with another detainee. Ms. DeSandoval says the crackdown has made things better in her neighborhood, an area called the Italian district that was once dominated by MS-13. She doesn't see young men smoking marijuana on the corners anymore, she said. It's safer, she said. In that way, it's a good thing. But she can't separate the upside from her daily pain. Her son will turn 22 inside this month, she said. She dreams of catching a single glimpse of him. I just want to see him, Ms. DeSandoval said, even if it's from far away. And that is the end of the New York Times article. So the gangs have been removed to the point where it seems that they no longer exist. And we are told that we should be upset about all of this because there are reportedly poor conditions in the prisons. And because some people have been accused, even though they were innocent. Now, those are both sad situations, and they are injustices, and we shouldn't ignore them. And that's all fine and good. But that's the sort of thing that happens in every society all the time. And again, the New York Times was just advocating for the arrest of entirely peaceful people who were walking between the velvet ropes in the Capitol on January 6th. They defend the FBI when the FBI is pursuing the parents of school children as domestic terrorists and creating informants in local churches. None of these mainstream outlets are advocating on behalf of people being illegally held without trial among the J six defendants. They're not advocating that these people be presented with evidence that would be exculpatory in their trials. They're just using this as an emotional rationalization to say that what El Salvador is doing is bad and no other country should follow their lead. Why? Because the regime needs these gangs. They are the ones who operate the illegal trafficking of humans and drugs and weapons and whatever else. And variations of that model exist worldwide for the same purpose. And they do so for the benefit of the same people. Everyone can see what this is, the propaganda mouthpiece of the global regime defending the interests of the global regime. They've cleaned out the gangs, but at what cost? The New York Times does not want people to think this is a good thing. And why not? Well, it's probably the same reason that the regime propaganda outlets were saying a few weeks back that Trump's position on the death penalty was a result of Trump wanting to go on a killing spree. It's not because they were protecting their own interests. But the ultimate point here is that this is possible. This is a possible future for the U.S., for Central American countries. The cartels can be disrupted and dismantled and criminals can be dealt with, whether they're trafficking drugs and weapons and humans or committing blatant political crimes to overthrow our country. Something can be done about all of this. The resources are there. All that's needed is the justification and the political will. And we are well on our way to getting there. They may be getting away with it for now. That doesn't mean they've gotten away with it. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And I'll see you soon. Out on the range.